Father, as we study this morning, uh, we just pray, Lord, your blessing upon us now. Give us excitement, Lord, joy, as we look at your word, as we see the completeness of your plan, as we see your promises to your people fulfilled. And Lord, by extension, Lord, we see that your promises to all mankind are there and that you are a faithful God. Oh, Lord, please help us this morning just to be just in awe of your word and your timing and your control on history. And Father, the way that you spoke to your servant Joel and his faithfulness in recording these things, Lord, stir our hearts that we also would present our lives as living sacrifices, that you would be able to use us also in these days. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are in the book of Joel. Uh, Let me just remind you what we saw when we were back in Hosea, that God says that he's spoken by the prophets, that he's multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. In other words, God has used types and shadows and models of things that were to speak of that which will be. And we see in many ways uh, that God has done this. Now, one of the ways that we see it in the book of Joel, that Joel was speaking of a real locust plague that had just devastated the region. And Joel and all those around him would have been so aware of this. Joel speaks of this, but as something that is also to come. So in other words, what you've just seen is a forerunner of something that's going to come that's going to be even more devastating. And what Joel is referring to is the time of tribulation. As Joel refers to it, the day of the Lord is that expression that we find throughout the Old Testament. So that real situation that occurred becomes the springboard for Joel to say, okay, this is what has happened. It was devastating, but what's coming is going to be even worse than that. And of course, we've seen the types and the shadows in the feasts of Israel. The first three feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, all being prophetically fulfilled during Passion Week. Okay, so the real festivals that Israel celebrated, but themselves pointed forward to something that was to come. They were models that God has set up to indicate that something else was going to happen that was even more dramatic. And of course, Passover, it was the firstborn of the land were to die, uh, to come under God's wrath, but those that were uh, protected in the houses marked by the blood would be safe. And of course we see that fulfilled, that Jesus' son was killed. But those that were marked by that blood, again, can be saved. And then of course the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passion Week and First Fruits falling on all during that period of time. And then 50 days later, the Feast of Pentecost, uh, the beginning of the church, the birth of the church, uh, we'll talk briefly about that later as well. The first assembly of Christians together, really proper mass gathering of Christians, uh, Jews, believing Jews, because the church at that time was Jewish. Um, again, just rejoicing in what God had done. And that was to, to be the fulfillment of the feast of weeks or harvest, uh, Pentecost. And then these last three feasts, the, my belief is that these are outlined in Joel as prophetically to be fulfilled during the time of the tribulation. Then, of course, we have the Feast of Trumpets, and that will be fulfilled during that time of trumpet judgments, but again, specifically in regard to Israel. Then the Feast of Atonement, that is, Israel flees to the wilderness. There'll be that time of fulfillment as Israel are there, and they call out to the Lord. Uh, They recognize, as Hosea had said, that it will be in their affliction that they will call out to the Lord. And then finally, the Feast of Tabernacles, 
that the Lord will return. And that's very much the subject of chapter 3. Let me just remind you again, this is a great quote from Montague Mills. He says, Joel was probably the first of the so-called writing prophets. So this book provides a valuable insight into the history of prophecy, particularly as it furnishes a framework for the end times, which is faithfully followed by all subsequent scripture. God started a new work with the writing of Joel, that of preparing the human race for the end of this temporal era and thus gave an outline of his total plan. Later prophets, including even our Lord, would only flesh out this outline, but in keeping with the divine nature of true scripture, never found it necessary to deviate from this, the initial revelation. Great, great statement. It really does paint the picture that what we're looking at in Joel is like a framework. It's like a picture frame. If you're doing a a picture or something, you often start with the borders, you start with the framework. That's kind of what we've got in Joel. And the other prophets that follow on will then take these things and they'll expound them. Again, chapter 1, we saw the birth of the nation alluded to. National apostasy, the rejection of the Messiah. Rome eventually coming and destroying. The fact the sacrifice would be stopped. Then that will be followed by the diaspora, the dispersal of the Jews around the world. And then finally, when we get to the time of the tribulation, Antichrist, who will come onto the world scene, would then cause sacrifice to be halted again. All of that, I believe we see laid out for us, just kind of in embryonic form in chapter 1 of the book of Joel. Just enough to give us some headers. Now, again, we find all of those things are expounded on elsewhere in Scripture. When we get to that last point, that's what we start to see then building on in chapter 2. So the first part covers a huge span. Chapter 1 covers a huge span of the history of the nation of Israel. But then we get into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, this is where we really enter the day of the Lord, as it were, uh, the great tribulation. And this is where the trumpet sounds. The beginning of chapter 2 of Joel starts with the sounding of the trumpet and that locust invasion that Joel had witnessed the real thing, uh, the physical event, but there's a spiritual demonic event that's going to occur during the first part of that great tribulation time. And uh, we find that two-thirds of Israel are going to be destroyed. I mean, we talk about the Holocaust and all the, the horror that occurred, and yet Israel has still got a frightening time ahead of them from what the Bible reveals. Of course, we're going to find that will be followed then by the abomination of desolation as Antichrist, this coming world leader, is going to establish in Jerusalem, in the temple in Jerusalem, he's going to put his own image there and he's going to try and cause everybody to worship this image. That's going to cause a real problem for the Jews because they won't do that. And so they'll be forced to flee and they will flee to Edom to the place we believe is uh, Jordan, to Petra, and they'll be protected and provided of the Lord while they're there. Whilst this is going on, again, this seems to be revealed in chapter 2 of Joel, there's a call for the church, who by that point will be raptured, will be in heaven, to intercede on behalf of Israel, to pray for them, that the nations won't be able to boast against them, that the Lord will stand up for them. And then, as a result of that, I believe Israel will become remorseful and repentant they fall to their knees in the wilderness and they recognize that jesus was their messiah and they all repent and this is where it leads from the kind of the trumpet judges into the atonement and that they are restored they're renewed that god as he promised through ezekiel and other prophets will bring them to that place of realizing repenting and then being again reunited with their god 
Uh, and during this time in the wilderness, Israel will be provided for. All of that laid out, I believe, in chapter 2 of the book of Joel that we've seen already. So the Feast of Trumpets leading on to the Feast of Atonement. And then finally, into chapter 3, which is where we're going this morning. It's going to start with Armageddon. Okay, this, this phrase, the world knows the phrase, this film's been named this, and you know, it's a typical uh, expression that people know the end of the world, Armageddon. Well, it's not the end of the world, it's just the end of this order of things. Uh, the world's going to go on for another thousand years after this. Um, so the world kind of gets very confused because they don't read scripture, but uh, that will be uh, followed by then the gather, that it will lead to the gathering of the nations together at this place in Israel, the Jezreel Valley, the place, the Valley of Megiddo. And Israel, meantime, are going to petition their Messiah to come and to deliver them. You see, the nations will be gathered together, the nations of the world, to come and destroy Israel. And as Hosea said, let's just look at this. It's a really important scripture. And we've studied it when we're going through Hosea. I haven't got the slides up, so you just need to turn your Bibles to Hosea. You should know where that is now. In Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. And it just says this, I will go, this is God speaking, I will go and return to my place till they, that's Israel, acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. You notice two things there. They're going to acknowledge their offense, i.e. they're going to repent, but they're also going to do something else. They're going to seek God's face. They're going to turn to God. They're going to seek and they're going to cry out to God. In their affliction, they will seek me early or earnestly. So it will be during this time of affliction when they're in the wilderness, that they will cry out and they'll petition their Messiah to come and to fight for them because they're about to be destroyed by these amassed armies of the world. And that will lead to the second coming as Jesus Christ returns to deliver them. Isaiah refers to the fact that this one with garments dyed red in the blood uh, will come from Bosra, from Edom, and he'll come to fight this battle. And Revelation speaks of the blood of the horses being up to the bridles. There's so much blood will be shed from the nations of the world that are ma- mounting this um, offensive against Israel and against Jesus. But Jesus will come back and destroy them. And Israel's enemies obviously will subsequently be destroyed as a result of this. And then, of course, Jesus will establish his throne in Jerusalem. He will literally come and tabernacle among us and he will dwell on the earth in Jerusalem will be his throne and we will get to rule and reign with him uh, the church throughout the millennial kingdom in fact throughout eternity but through the, the millennial kingdom particularly and there'll be various responsibilities and roles given to the church during that time and all of this is alluded to in chapter three of Joel it's an incredible book three chapters and it covers all of history in regard to Israel and their history and their future and so on and again, that's why I believe that this last part is uh, the model or fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. So that just gives you kind of a framework of the, the bullet points in a sense. And that's what Joel is really giving you. Joel is giving you the bullet points of these things. And it's the other prophets that follow on in the rest of Scripture who then give us the, the detail around those things. And we'll be digging into some of those this morning. So let's jump into chapter 3. Now we've got to pick up chapter 2, verse 32, because we left off on 31 last time. Um, Verse 32 says, And it shall come to pass, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. 
Now, remember that Joel is giving an outline of prophetic history. And we can deduce five key things from this verse alone. Firstly, that God's plan of salvation is for the whosoever. It's not just for the Jews. It's for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that God will establish his kingdom on the earth. Again, that's implied in what we've just read. That his capital city is going to be Jerusalem. That his chosen people, therefore, are the Jews. But that only a remnant of the Jews will survive. We're told that it's a remnant. It's not going to be the whole nation. Only two-thirds, we're told, will actually make it through. So let's then jump into chapter 3. And again, now, this is where I believe we start to see the, the, the build-up to the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. And Revelation 19 and 20 uh, chapters that are worth reading in regard to this as well. We start chapter 3, verse 1. And by the way, let me just give you a warning heads up here because we're going to spend a lot of time on the first two verses. But the last rest of the chapter, we'll be able to move at a bit of a quicker pace. So don't, don't worry that we're spending a long time on the first couple of verses because there is so much here to look at. For behold, in those days and at that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. That's the opening statement to chapter 3. That God is saying here that he is going to bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, this is God's commitment to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's denied by much of the church for the last 2,000 years, largely because people like Augustine came on the scene and many others in the Catholic Church embraced this idea of replacement theology. Now, they did it for various reasons, political reasons and for power and so on. The church was going to be the new Jerusalem, apparently, and that all the promises that were given to Israel now apparently fall upon the church. Utter nonsense. You will not find that in Scripture, and you'll see very clearly as we go through some things in a moment that that is not a scriptural idea whatsoever. Sadly, so many churches, because, as I said, the Catholic Church adopted this idea And then the churches that came out of the Catholic Church, i.e. the Church of England because of the time of the Reformation, and therefore the Methodists and the Baptists and the the Lutherans and so many others, they all held on to those ideas. They never went back and really addressed those things. And so so sadly, there's been a lot of anti-Semitism within the Christian church. But here, God is saying, in the beginning of Joel, one of the, if we, if we're right in understanding this, and there seems to be many pointers that tell us this, that Joel was the first of the writing prophets. He's saying that God is going to bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. So God hasn't finished with Israel. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans. God hasn't finished with Israel. Certainly not. But God, of course, had a plan. And that plan was to bring in the Gentiles. And that blindness in part happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. When will the fullness of the Gentiles be coming, by the way? Anybody thought about that? Do you know? Well, if you look in Revelation, the fullness of the Gentiles will come in at just about the same time that Israel are fleeing and hiding in the wilderness. The last of the Gentiles that will be saved and raptured, taken out during the tribulation, will be complete. After that point in the tribulation, nobody will be saved. And God's wrath is poured out in full measure on the earth. So when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, midway through, or just after the midpoint, about chapter 16 of Revelation, if you want a time frame, about midway through the tribulation, just after, 
As Israel fled, the fullness of the Gentiles will be come in, and while Israel in the wilderness, that's when they will call out to the Lord. That's when they will turn back to him. So blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles will be come in. It's very specific. These aren't just random statements that we have. Of course, it was demonstrated by God in 1948. There really shouldn't be any doubt. You know, there were many great Bible scholars that were before 1948 that looked at Scripture and said, you know what, the only way for these Scriptures to be fulfilled is for Israel to literally return to the land of Israel. It seemed an utter impossibility. It's never happened in history before. 1948, it happened. Israel returned to the land of their origin. It was prophesied by Moses. We'll see that in a second. And outlined here by Joel. And is expounded on by Ezekiel. Let's look at that verse in, or that passage in Ezekiel to start with. Chapter 37 of Ezekiel. I'm sure you're familiar, the vision of the, the valley of the dry bones and so on, and that the bones kind of come together, but there's no spirit in them. And then the breath is breathed upon them. And then there's another vision of these two sticks representing the house of Israel and Judah. And then they're brought back together. And we're going to pick up verse 21. Thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whether they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. It doesn't get clearer than that. That is the death knell to replacement theology. Ezekiel 37, verse 21, it makes it really clear. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. To Israel, Judah, they're going to become a complete united nation again. No longer Israel and Judah. And they should not be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them, so that they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments, and observe my statutes, and do them. It seems to be, and a lot of commentators believe this really will be King David, that God will then raise up, he'll be resurrected, and during the millennium, David will be given the role of reigning over the house of Israel as Jesus rules over the whole world. But at the same time, some people say, well, yeah, but David prophetically is speaking of the son of David, Messiah. And so there are people who will argue that maybe it's just the Messiah is going to rule. Either way, either way works. But I believe it will be David that will be raised up. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given them unto... Uh, now, notice this. God says, and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant. The land of Israel was given by God to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And God says here, I gave it to Jacob. They're going to dwell in that land. There's no mistaking where this is referring to. Wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein. Even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. God's going to say his sanctuary. 
It's going to be the temple. Jesus will rule and reign from there. Uh, this is Ezekiel's prophecy. It's staggering. And just concludes, it says, my tabernacle also shall be with them. Interesting, isn't it? We're talking about the Feast of Tabernacles being fulfilled as Jesus comes and literally dwells in their midst. My tabernacle also shall be with them, yea, I will be their God, they shall be my people, and the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel, not the church, doesn't apply to the church, church is dealt with separately, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Now let's go back and look at what God had said through Moses. Deuteronomy 30, a staggering prophecy given the time frame here. This is some 1,400 years before Jesus came. Okay, so for us, this is some uh, 3,400 years ago. And it says, and it shall come to pass. Now note this, when. Now Deuteronomy 28 lists all the blessings and the curses that will come upon Israel. It's 15 verses of blessing. And the rest of the really long chapter in Deuteronomy 28 is all the curses, all the things that will happen if they're disobedient. And then we get to chapter 13. It says, it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon them. Or are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse. So God is saying, the blessings will fall upon you. And God did indeed bless Israel. But the curses also came upon them. And they, they did have to be forced out and, and flee the land. And their life hung in doubt. And in the morning, they were wishing it with the evening and so on. And they, 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 they didn't know whether they were going to survive from one day to the next. That's been the history of the Jews that we've known. This is all prophesied. The way these things have come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among the nations, whether the Lord thy God has driven thee. I want you to make a note of that mentally for a moment. We're going to refer back to this. God is saying that when it's all happened, the blessing and the curse, and you get to a point that you actually call them to mind. There's going to come a point in time when you are scattered amongst the nations that you call these things, you remember them. And then notice verse 2, and, uh, and shall return unto the Lord thy God. So what's going to happen? Once Israel has been scattered amongst the nations... At some point, there's going to be an occasion when they call these things to mind and they're going to return to the Lord thy God and shall obey his voice according to all thy commanding this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul. That then, this is conditional. It's a when and then. So when this has happened and this has happened, this happened. So again, they're going to be driven around the world. They're going to come to a place of calling out to the Lord. Then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and will have compassion upon thee and will uh, return and gather thee from all the nations whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. Notice when God says that he's going to bring them back from around the world, it's when they turn to him. If any of thy be driven out um, uh, to the utmost parts of heaven, from thence will the Lord thy God gather thee and from thence will he fetch thee, and the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and shall possess it. And he will do thee good, and multiply thee above thy fathers. I just want to go back again, just look at what we noted there. It's that when it's going to happen, it's the whole idea of returning. They're going to call them to mind, they're going to remember them, and they're going to return to the Lord thy God. Now, God told Moses, again, when these things have come to pass, the blessings, the curses, the scatterings, being driven around the world, that then the Lord would have compassion when Israel turned to him. I'm really laboring this point, and you'll see why. 
Solomon prayed a very similar prayer to this, by the way, in Second Chronicles about Israel. When they're scattered around the world, when they're in these places that the Lord had driven them, if they look towards the temple and they pray, the Lord would hear their prayer and return them to that place. Ezekiel also prophesied that although Israel would be regathered, initially they'd be spiritually dead until God breathed life into them. Now, when among the nations did Israel seek the Lord and cry out to him? Or another way of asking the same question, when was it that the Lord started to bring them back to their land in fulfillment of these prophecies? Well, this is an excerpt from the study we did a little while back now uh, called The Greatest Mystery. And I want to just take you through this because in the context of this, it is staggering. Now, pay attention. This is really, really incredible. We mentioned this morning, and of course, Joel highlights that which Peter read on the day of Pentecost about what was going to happen in the day of the Lord. Old men dreaming dreams, young men prophesying. And that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Well, on that occasion, in the first century, and this book of Acts tells us, there was a gathering that it was taking place of Messianic Jewish believers. There were disciples, apostles, and there were leaders, and they met together in Jerusalem. And it was from that gathering that the door of faith would be opened to the nations. It was a result of that meeting that the church grew. You know, 3,000 were added in one day, we call. And that the gospel would then go forth beyond the land of Israel to all nations, and the Gentiles would now come in. We've spoken about that already this morning. And that gathering would change the course of world history, and indeed we know it has. But as the first century neared its end, and the days of the book of Acts drew to a close, such gatherings of Jewish believers disappeared from the world. But in line with the Jubilee principle, now bear with me a second as we go through this, in the days of return, and there's this idea, there's the idea of Jubilee, you understand the Jubilee principle in Scripture, that the 50th year, everybody would return to their own heritage, their own land, they'd return to that which was. It's the idea of resetting what had been. So in the idea of this, in the days of return, that which had disappeared must reappear. In essence, it's a reversal. And so there was another gathering. And this was the first such gathering in some 2,000 years. It was the first council of Messianic Jewish believers since the days of the disciples. And they came from the nations of the world, teachers, leaders, emissaries, and so on, and they came to London. And they worshipped, they prayed, they shared, and they declared their identity. And they agreed on their purpose and mission and arrived at a resolution. They recognized the need for a homeland for their people. And they sought the Lord, they prayed. The gathering established the first known alliance of Messianic Jewish believers since the first disciples gathered in Jerusalem some 2,000 years earlier. One of the speakers of the event reminded the assembly of its ancient origins, and he actually made this comment. He said, there was a meeting a long time ago when the Jews from every nation were gathered together, and the Lord poured out his Spirit upon them. That was the first Hebrew-Christian alliance. The timing of that gathering was significant. Just, just let me take you back a second. We've already read that 
when Israel will be scattered around the world, at a certain point, if they then turn to the Lord, the Lord would then start to bring them back to their land. This is that moment. And it took place in the year 1867. It's the year that everything began in 1867. It was the first, it was, it was that gathering in London that constitutes this first jubilee event in this whole incredible scenario that follows. It is the first return, if you like. Everything started to reset, going back to as it was, the idea of jubilee. And that gathering convened in the spring. In fact, it was the month of May. It was the same month in which the destruction of Israel began when the Romans' armies invaded the land. And so it was the same month the destruction began. So did the restoration. Again, a reversal. Incredibly, two days after this meeting, after 2,000 years, the release of the promised land began. Now, we'll talk a little bit about the history of the land in a second, but the Ottoman land code became law because of the Crimean War and the debts that had been amassed by the Ottoman Empire. They started having to sell land in order to raise money to survive. And so they started selling land. Initially, they didn't do it to anybody other than their own people, but that wasn't raising enough money. So at this particular moment in time, they suddenly opened it out to anybody, that anybody could buy land in Israel. And guess what? Jews started buying land. Less than 30 days after that meeting in London, a ship set sail from New York en route to the promised land. There was an individual on board that ship who seems to be the one that is alluded to in Deuteronomy as the stranger. Let's just look at Deuteronomy. It says, So that generation to come of your children that shall rise up after you, and the stranger... And in the, 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 the Hebrew, you can check this, it's a specific individual. It's not just a general term. It's a specific individual. The stranger that shall come from a far land shall say when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid upon it, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown nor beareth nor any grass groweth. Therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admar and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and his wrath. Well, the stranger was none other than Mark Twain, again known as the father of American literature, author of Huckleberry Finn and so on. He wasn't a believer. He had no intention of trying to fulfill this prophecy. In fact, he made this quote uh, regarding the Bible. He said, it's full of interest. It has noble poetry in it and some clever fables and some blood-drenched history and some good morals, but a wealth of obscenity and upward of a thousand lies. That was his view of the Bible. He had no intention of doing anything to fulfill a prophecy in the book of Deuteronomy. And yet, as we look at this, it's incredible because arriving in the land, he wrote this, rags, wretchedness, poverty and dirt, lepers, cripples and blind, to see the number of maimed, malformed, and diseased humanity that throng the holy places. It sounds just like the words of Deuteronomy, does it not? So according to Moses, the stranger would say that the whole land is brimstone and salt, and Twain would bear witness. He says this, all desolate and unpeopled, miles of solitary or some desolate country, a far-reaching desolation, the waste of a limitless desolation. Again, according to the prophecy in Deuteronomy, the stranger, when he would come to the land, would say, all the land is a burning waste. 
or as another translation puts it, your land has become a scorching desert. And Twain would write this, it is a scorched, arid, repulsive solitude, exactly as Deuteronomy said that a stranger would come and say these things of the land, so Mark Twain did. Such roasting heat, such oppressive solitude, and such dismal desolation cannot surely exist elsewhere on earth. Nowhere in all the waste around was there a foot of shade, and we were scorching to death. Again, the prophecy in Deuteronomy says that the land would become devoid of anyone to sow it. Mark Twain wrote this, All the land is unsown. One may ride ten miles hereabouts and not see ten human beings. These unpeopled deserts, these rusty mounds of barrenness that never, never, never do uh, shake the glare from their harsh outlines. There is not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for thirty miles in either direction. These are the things that Mark Twain wrote. And Moses also prophesied that the land would not bring forth, and uh, nor does it bear, is what the uh, Deuteronomy says. Hebrew word is uh, samak there. It's used which specifically refers to sprouting. Mark Twain, again, bears, bears witness to the land's inability to sprout vegetables. He wrote this. The valleys are unsightly deserts, fringed with a feeble vegetation, a desert paired with loose stones, void of vegetation, glaring in the fierce sun, this blistering, naked, treeless land. That's how Israel was when Mark Twain visited it in 1867. And the prophecy again states that the stranger would speak of uh, the grass, or rather the absence of it. No grass grows in it, it says in Deuteronomy. Uh, Not even a blade of grass, one translation puts it. Well, Mark Twain, in his notebook, which he then put into a book that was then made public and the world got to read, wrote this, no sprig of grass is visible. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible, the detail of what we have in Deuteronomy and that which Mark Twain wrote. Now, as already mentioned, he was a skeptic, had no intention of fulfilling this 3,500-year-old prophecy. But in addition to the things already noted, Scripture tells us that the stranger, it will be said this, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against land to bring upon it all the curses that are written in this book. (laughs) And he said this, Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse. This is somebody who doesn't believe, stating that, It's as if a curse is upon this land. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? Again, Mark Twain's words appeared in articles across America and beyond and become a witness's generation, thus fulfilling this prophecy. And the timing again was right on cue. It was when the land was at its most desolate that these offense would be the prophetic key to set the stage for the redemption of the land and the return of the exiles, the children of Israel. But, you know, there was another prophecy that was to be fulfilled before they could return. Okay, so this is all very, very, very interesting. Because just as Israel had returned from captivity in Babylon, Zechariah had recorded a vision of a man with a measuring line. Zechariah 12, the first, Zechariah chapter 2, the first two verses, says, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. You know, just as a builder uses a measuring line as he's planning to build a house or a building or any description, you know, to prepare the foundation, so God did this with Israel, not just in Nehemiah's day, but also in recent times also. You know, what happens when you're about to take possession of a piece of land or a property? 
Anybody that's moved house will know this, but a survey's got to be completed. Now, just reading a comment from Jonathan Kahn's book, The Oracle, which is fantastic. I encourage anybody to get a copy and read it. But he said this, the land must be defined or redefined, its length, its breadth, its borders, its parameters. And if there's no existing survey, then a survey must be made. The land must be defined, mapped out, measured, and so the measuring line. So in the days of Zechariah, when the Jewish people were returning to the land, the man with the measuring line comes to the city in a vision, and his appearance is a sign of what is yet to take place. It happened in the ancient world. So too it would happen again in the modern. The ancient sign would again manifest in the world in modern times. The man with the measuring line would again come to Jerusalem, and his appearance would be a sign of what was yet to come. And the name of the man was Charles Warren. Another name you may know from history. He was a former head of the Metropolitan Police, and he served as an officer in the British Army and a member of the Royal Engineers. He was very skilled and qualified. And the skills he'd learned in so doing proved to be invaluable, for he was later uh, recruited by the Palestinian Exploration Fund and sent to the land of Israel on a mission to survey and map out Jerusalem and to measure the Holy City. Now, remember, at that time, the land was under the control of the Ottoman Turks. They were very suspicious of his being there, and they kept a very close eye on what he was doing. Nevertheless, Warren's work would constitute the first extensive excavation of biblical Jerusalem, the first extensive measuring of the biblical foundations of the Temple Mount and of the city itself. It would usher in a new age of biblical archaeology. Again, remember the idea of the Jubilee. That which is lost has got to be restored. And the boundaries of the land given by God to Moses, the inheritance allotted to the children of Israel, had long since been forgotten, but now they were being rediscovered. His mission was not just to survey Jerusalem as it was uh, then, but as it once was, to measure its ancient parameters, its boundaries, the boundaries of ancient Jerusalem, the biblical city, to locate its ancient walls and borders, to uncover its foundations. In other words, to restore what had been lost. In order to do that, he had to dig through centuries of ruins and earth to get to the city's biblical foundations. Jonathan Kahn makes this comment. He says, in the Jubilee, the connection between the land and the original owner is restored. You recognize that from what we're told in, in the Torah. And so the consequences of Warren's work were to restore and strengthen the long-lost connection of the Jewish people to the land. And with every restored connection, the idea that the Jewish people, after almost 2,000 years, might somehow return to their homeland began to move one more step out of the realm of fantasy. After nearly 2,000 years of exile, the man with a measuring line reappeared in Jerusalem as a sign that God was about to bring about a restoration. A measuring line is used when one is about to build something. So then the reappearance of the man with the measuring line in the person of Charles Warren was a sign that God was about to act, to move again, to build something, to rebuild that which once was and had fallen, the nation of Israel. And when else do you use a measuring line? When there's about to be a transference of land. So when the man with the measuring line appeared in Jerusalem, it was a sign that the land was going to be transferred back to the original owner. The land was being prepared for the return. 
And so it was in ancient times when the prophet Zechariah revealed the meaning of the measuring line, and the measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. What was the year that Warren came to Jerusalem? 1867. The very same year. So 1867 was the year of the gathering in London. The first gathering of its kind in almost 2,000 years as these Messianic Jewish believers had got together and they petitioned and prayed to the Lord that the Lord would return them to their land. Immediately, two days later, it was followed by the Ottoman land grant. Because of their debts, again amassed because of the Crimean War, they then allowed people to buy the land. So Jews started buying up the land. Subsequently, Mark Twain then, in fact, within 30 days, visited or set sail and visited Jerusalem and then declared those things we've already said. Within five months, Charles Warren was in the land. In fact, by the time Mark Twain's visit arrived, Charles Warren and Mark Twain were both in the land on the same day. In fact, they even stayed in the same house at the same time. Is that all coincidence? God said, when my people effectively petition, when they cry out, wherever they're scattered around the world, then I will return them to their land. And they cried out, and God started all these things in motion. And then would come the first school to teach Jewish people to farm the land. And then the first settlements. And then the return of the exiles. And the month of that gathering... In London was May, and the day, well, it was the 14th of May. Was there any coincidence? It was the same date. And some years later, Israel will be declared a nation again. That's verse 1 of Joel. Let's go on to verse 2. I thought we'd spend a little bit of time on these things, but you see why. So God promising he's going to bring Israel back to his land. Verse 2, and when he does that, he says, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and parted my land. When God says he's going to plead, this isn't God entering into some kind of bargaining thing. God doesn't need to do that. God has a controversy with the nations. God is going to speak to them. The Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Jezreel Valley, or also known as Armageddon. If you look at it on a map, you can see that kind of area where the arrow is pointing to, that kind of green area on the map there. That's the Valley of Jezreel, or the Jehoshaphat uh, Valley, as it's also known. And typically, we know it as Armageddon. If you look at it from the sky, you can see this kind of a big, big area, a big plain. There's a few kind of, uh, uh, not really lakes, they're kind of uh, man-made reservoirs that have been placed in there. Um, but it's a very, very flat area, a great staging area for armies to gather if that were to happen. <laughs> That's uh, Megiddo, Tel Megiddo. It's a place that has civilization after civilization been built on the same place. Uh, it's just a small mound, really, but it's just it's built up, uh, and you can visit it today, and you can see Solomon had um, um, soldiers stationed here and, and so on. Lots of history regarding this place, but it gives you a good vantage point to look over the valley. But that is a view from the other side. That's from Nazareth. Now, the fascinating thing to think about here is that Jesus, as a boy, grew up in Nazareth. He'd have been able to walk to the top of this hill, which later, by the way, in the Gospels, is the same place that they try and take him and try and push him off the edge of the cliff. And this is a pretty steep drop from here. And Jesus just walks through their midst. But 
as a boy, Jesus could have walked up here and looked over this whole valley, knowing that this was going to be the staging post for this climactic event that's going to bring to an end this, this kind of period of time, this part of history. Now notice what we're told. God's going to gather the nations. They're going to amass, they're going to be intent on coming together and destroying Israel. Why? Because Israel won't comply. Because Israel won't worship this image of the Antichrist that's been established in the temple. And because they won't comply, the world is going to force them, or intend to force them to comply. And God's going to plead with them there. That's a kind of polite way of saying, God is going to tell them what he thinks of them. For my people, Israel, for my heritage, Israel, he says, whom they have scattered among the nations. Now, note the complaint that God has against the nations is that they have scattered his people among the nations, number one, but also they've parted my land. Now, just a quick bit of background on this. In Genesis chapter 15, really 12 through 15, but in chapter 15, God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham. We know this because Abraham falls into a deep sleep and God sets up this whole thing without Abraham's participation. It's while Abraham's asleep. So he actually explains, there's more details of this in Jeremiah 34, there's a similar event that occurs there. And God passes through the pieces of this sacrifice. You typically take a bird or whatever, an animal, you divide it into two parts, and then you pass through the middle of it in a kind of a, a figure of eight. It's kind of cutting a covenant, as it was known. And literally, you pass through uh, the one that you normally have two parties, and they would kind of go in a figure of eight, passing through the middle of these divided parts of what was originally one creature. And the idea was that this covenant was such that you were joined together as one. And so that God does this, but does it while Abraham's asleep. God's the only party in the covenant, in a sense, but Abraham's obviously uh, part of it. Now, the terms of the covenant are very clear, because it's declared eternal and unconditional, it's reconfirmed by an oath later on, and it's confirmed to Isaac and to Jacob, despite their lack of obedience at times. And the New Testament also declares immutable, that God cannot lie. Now, this is the the, the details of that. In the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The boundaries are unmistakable. It's from the Egypt, the river in Egypt, to the river Euphrates. Now, if we look at this on a map, when we think of Israel, we always think of the little bit of Israel that we know today, which is smaller than the size of Wales. But we're told that the boundaries stretch up to the river Euphrates and down to the river of Egypt. Now, there is some debate over which is the river of Egypt. Uh, some argue that it could even be the Nile, but others suggest that this river of Egypt is this one, this uh, wadi, and that flows into the sea uh, from the midst of the Sinai Peninsula. If that's the case, it means that whole territory is the land that God promised Abraham. That has never, ever been in Israel's possession, not the whole of that land. Okay, that's the full extent. Now, they've had portions of it at various times, and under Solomon's reign, of course, it was one of the greatest points the the nation ever had uh, in terms of its uh, uh, ascendancy amongst nations. But the fulfillment of this promise still is waiting. Now, Abraham ultimately would die in the land, so would Isaac, and so would Jacob, or actually Jacob would die down in Egypt. But then after the 400 years, as been prophesied was complete, they would come out. Moses led them. Joshua brought them back into the land. But even under Joshua, they only had a very small proportion of that land. 
<clears throat> that's the, again, you just see the roughly the area that Joshua conquered. Under David, again, the land enjoyed a much greater, um, or the Israel enjoyed a much greater uh, part of the land. But then finally, because of the Assyrian invasion and so on, and the Babylonians, they ended up with a very small portion of Judah before the Babylonian captivity. Well, then the Babylonian Empire took over. Israel had lost control of their land by this point. Babylonian Empire had it. That was then succeeded. Israel was taken back to Babylon. And we know the dreams that Daniel has. We went through this in our study in Daniel of the subsequent empires that would come. The Persian Empire, again, taking rule over the land, followed by the Greek Empire, taking rule over the land, and then followed by the Roman Empire that took control over the land and have ultimately forced Israel out of the land in 132 AD. The Bar Kokhba revolt against uh, Hadrian, led Hadrian to just get the Jews completely out of the land, plowed Jerusalem over with oxen and so on. Hadrian later renames the land Palestina after Israel's enemies. Okay, after the Philistines, that's what the name means. The Palestine is the Philistines. Of course, Israel were forced to flee. That then leads on to the Byzantium Empire, the followed on after the Romans. So again, Israel didn't have control of the land. And that was then followed by the Ottoman Empire. Now that brings us up to what we were talking about a little while ago, because it was during the time of the Ottoman Empire that they started to lose control because of the Crimean War, and there's fascinating history behind all of that as well, but because of the Crimean War, the Ottoman Empire needed to sell some of the land. They started selling it. And it started in 1867, as we said already. And this is all going on behind the scenes. Things are moving. That led to the Sykes-Pickett Agreement. But again, Israel still didn't have the land in 1916. That led to the Balfour Declaration, I'm sure you remember. Uh, Balfour, the whole idea that um, even Balfour was in this position of foreign secretary was incredible, it was a miracle of God. But he made this statement, His Majesty's government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. There it was, it was out, the statement was out. That the governments, of, or this government, of this, of this country was going to try and engineer and bring about establishment of a place in Israel for the Jewish people. Now, of course, they used the word Palestine. There was no Palestinian people because that's just a media invented myth for political purposes. There was never a Palestinian people. They're the Philistines. They've long gone. That led to the British and French mandate and then finally to the 1922 British partition of the land. You see, the contention that we read about in the beginning of the book of Joel, chapter 3, verse 2, is that God says, you have parted my land. And we've seen this all the way through history. The subsequent nations that have had it, they've had control of it. And then finally we get to this point that the land has been divided up and parted. And then we get to the UN petition, 1948, as Israel became a nation again. They were promised a huge extent of land. And of course, the governments of the world went back on what was promised. And they gave them a very small, tiny portion of what they'd originally promised them. And then we get to the War of Independence. <clears throat> and interestingly, the PLO wasn't formed until 1964, um, which is three years before they lost control of the occupied territories. Israel didn't have the territories that they contend over at the point the PLO were formed. What were the PLO liberating at that point? If you just think about that, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That obviously led to 1967 when Israel captured the whole region. 
including all the Sinai Peninsula, but then, then after the 19th 78 Camp David petition, they gave back the Sinai Peninsula, that was annexed off, and they were left with that land, uh, including Jerusalem. And by the way, in 1967, uh, that was an anniversary of that jubilee in 1867. Every one of these 50-year points from that point is significant. And then 93, the Oslo Accords again, petitioning, breaking up of the land and so on, and 2003, roadmap to peace. And it's still going on. In 2006, Hamas was elected and so on. And there's still this dispute over Israel's status as a nation, even to this day. But the crazy thing is, you know, people say, well, Israel only became a nation in 1948. Yeah, but Saudi only became a nation in that sense in 1913, and Lebanon in 1920. Iraq was only 1932, Syria in 1941, and Jordan in 1946. In Kuwait, 1961, nobody's contending over their sovereignty. You know, there's a real bias against Israel. Of the 895 Security Council resolutions, now this is out of date, but this was back a few years ago, this was current then, that were passed before 1990, 526 were directed against Israel. 61% of all the United Nations Security Council resolutions were directed against Israel, a country smaller than Wales. Of the 690 General Assembly resolutions before 1990, 62% again were directed against Israel. During five wars against Israel, which they did not start, there was no resolutions against the, the Arab nations that had caused and brought those wars into being. November 2003, Israel introduced its first resolution since 1976. Israel requested the Arab terrorist uh, not tar- sorry, the Arab terrorists not target Israeli women and children. I think that's a reasonable request. It was rejected. Seriously. Uh, the UN then adopted a resolution that demanded protection of Palestinian children from Israel. There's so much bias. Zechariah 12 says this, I will, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people, that all people that burden that, that burn themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, that all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. And that's exactly what we have seen going on. We'll look at that in more detail when we get to Zechariah, Lord willing. Again, Israel is said in Numbers, the prophecy of Balaam, that they will not be reckoned amongst the nations. You know, and some quotes here. Israel has been a member of the United Nations for more than 50 years. She is not allowed to take her two-year term as one of the ten rotating nations joining the five, joining the five permanent ones on the UN Security Council. Of the 191 current members, 190, including the worst terrorist nations, are allowed to take their turns on the Security Council, but not Israel. Nor is Israel, as already noted, allowed to take a rotating turn on the 53-member UN Commission on Human Rights. All of the other 190 UN member nations are allowed to do so. These included Libya, Cuba, Zimbabwe, and other uh, egregious violators of human rights. Incredibly, Sudan, where more than 2 million blacks in the south have been slaughtered by Muslims, have been voted in for a third consecutive turn. Uh, or had been, uh, Israel, the only democracy in the Middle East, is excluded. Um, incredible. So what are the promised lands to Abraham? Well, it's revealed in the vision given to Ezekiel in chapters 45 and 46 that, that Israel will get this land. 
And this is what is going to be dealt with when the Lord returns at the time of the second coming. Israel will have the entire region that God promised to them. See, Israel have a historical right to that, and it was the land of their fathers. They have an archaeological proof of that. The presence of Jews for more than 3,000 years has clearly now been vindicated. It has practical value. The desert was, it was a desert until Israel returned there, and now it's a fruitful field. Many scriptures that prophesied that happening. From a humanitarian point of view, the Jews obviously need a homeland. And from a balanced point of view, Israel's the only democracy in the Middle East as well. But from a religious point of view, you know, you look at scripture, you find that Israel are referred to 2,565 times in the Bible and Jerusalem 811. I mean, it clearly is the place where Israel belong. And of course, divine right trumps all of those because God said it is his land. Great book, Reluctant Witness by Stephen Haynes said this, uh, the survival of the Jewish people is the greatest proof of the existence of of Almighty God. If there were no God in heaven, there would not be one Jewish person on the earth. Queen Victoria, I'm sure you've heard this, once posed the question to Benjamin Disraeli, her prime minister. She said, can you give me one verse from the Bible that proves there's a God? And he thought for a moment and responded and said, I can give you the answer in just one word. What is it? She wanted to know. Disraeli replied, the Jew, your majesty. One eminent man once said that the universal dispersion of the Jews throughout the world, their unex- uh, unexampled sufferings and their marvelous uh, persever- uh, sorry, preservation would be enough to establish the truth of the scriptures if all other evidence was cast into the sea. Dave Torrance said this, the very existence of the Jews in history together with all that has happened to them in their long, turbulent history, is proof that there is a God present and active through his Holy Spirit in history. By all normal laws of geography, history, and ethnography, they ought, as a distinct race, have disappeared long ago. Despite wars, persecutions, and repeated attempts to obliterate them, they have kept their peculiar identity. They have remained a people apart from the other nations of the world, a testimony to the preserving hand of God. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And then Dave Hunt, we'll leave it here this morning. We won't do the rest of the chapter. We'll do that next week now. Dave Hunt said this, If the Bible is in error concerning Israel, its major subject, then all of the synagogues and Christian churches that claim to base their beliefs on those scriptures ought to admit that fact and shut their doors. If... However, the Bible is true, then the nations of the world ought to govern their conduct accordingly. For if they do not, the consequences will be disastrous. Next week we will go on and we will look at the consequences for the nations that will march against Jerusalem, that will be gathered together by Antichrist, that they will intend to try and wipe out and destroy Israel. But note again, these first two verses, and yes, we spent a long time on them, but the point I really want to get across is how precise Scripture is, how incredible God is in fulfilling his promises. God said that when Israel was scattered around the world, when they cried out to him, he would respond. That happened in 1867, and it set a chain of events unfolding that have brought Israel back into their land. Let's bow our hearts. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that you are faithful. 
Thank you, Lord, that we can trust you in all things. And Lord, you have clearly watched over every turn, every movement, every moment of the history of the nation of Israel because they are your people, that you called them and you promised them a land. And that, Father, you have brought them already back into that land and you'll continue to do so. And Lord, at the time of the second coming, Lord, they will finally be given that land, the entirety of it, as was promised to Abraham. Lord, help us to have the confidence and trust in you that we should, knowing that you're a God that always keeps your promises to your people. Oh, we do pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for all that is yet ahead. But Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.